Welcome to Shooting the Shit. I'm Oscar. And I'm Alex. We were random roommates. And now we're random bestmates. To round off our trilogy of person-to-person conversations and communication, we want to interview another very good friend of ours. In a group discussion we once had, she said that she identifies a great friend as someone who knows when to interrupt her because she's such an amazing conversationalist. Now, that probably means that Oscar and I are pretty bad friends because we just want to listen to everything she was teaching us. This is Isabella Jabillion. She's a journalist who really stepped into the heat and pushed conversations that not many people can have from the California wildfires to UK war veterans. <laughs> Isabella Jabillion, thank you so much for joining us. Just to kick things off really quickly, could you give a, a quick intro about yourself, who you are, how you know us, and I guess where you are in life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so happy and honored to be asked on the show. Um, my name is Isabella um, Jabillion. I'm a reporter at Business Insider right now. Um, I'm 24. Um, I'm part of their fellowship program, so I'm employed for the next six months. Um, beyond that, we'll see. Um, but um, yeah, I feel like I'm, I, in terms of the point of my life that I'm at, I'm kind of decided that there's a trade that I really want to pursue. And I'm really trying to, you know, build the skills and pursue it and realizing that, you know, not everything comes easily and that there are a lot of mistakes you got to make along, along the way. Could you give us the, the superhero origin story to your love of journalism? I guess it kind of started, I thought I wanted to be a diplomat when I was at Stanford and I um, was an IR major, international relations major, and I also had a friend that was going to London for the summer and I was very, very jealous of her. I wanted to go too. I was like, I don't have any good summer plans and um, I realized that I could... um, propose a research grant and um, see if it could, um, you know, bring me to a different place, do something new. And I had a cousin who had served in Afghanistan and I kind of, you know, I would conjured this idea, okay, what if I spent my summer in London talking to British veterans that had served in Afghanistan and hear about their point of view, because I've been in a very like American centric international relations education education and I like let's see it from a different perspective Um, and so I spent my summer like popping to um, pubs all over London and one in um, in a tea room in Manchester (laughs) I took the train all the way up to Manchester and I was interviewing mostly officers that served in Afghanistan Um, and at the end of the summer I um, kind of started thinking and I realized that like I love to chat with people. I love to learn about perspectives that are different from my own. And then I decided to go to journalism school and really flesh that out and consider it as a real career. Um, And so, you know, along the way, I realized that I love being a noob. (laughs) I love being, you know, I love starting at nothing in a topic and and suddenly like diving into a different world of my own. Mm -hmm. And I love that journalism helps me empower me to do that. It empowers me to ask questions and also to reach out to people that I might not have reached out to if I didn't have the, I'm the, I'm a reporter kind of credential under my belt. Awesome. That's, that is a superhero story indeed. I think that's as hero of the tale as it, as it, it can get. 
did you know prior to, I guess, that moment of, uh, you know, the wanting to go out to London, had you already thought of yourself as a person who like sought people's stories, whether that was just on like a friendship social basis or like how'd that shift come? Cause I feel like for a lot of journalists, that's like a critical part, but like, had that been something kind of within your personality and nature from like early on? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think that I actually, I, for a long time, I've been told that like, I'm very, I'm pretty easy to talk to. And that, you know, the joke that my mom always said was like, my mom would talk to the barista at Starbucks or the guy mowing the lawn or, you know, some, someone new and they would always tell them her life story. And she, she doesn't, she's like, I don't know why I attract this. Maybe I have a sympathetic face. Like, you know, she was like, how she would come home and I'd be like, how do you know that much about a person? You, you've met them in such a random way. And then I realized that actually, as I got a little older, a similar thing started happening to me where I, you know, actually, I remember probably one of the first times was I was going to get coffee and, um, you know, I asked the guy, the cashier, I was like, hey, how are you, you know, how's your day going? And he starts telling me, he's like, my mom is in the hospital, you know, blah, blah. And we have this whole conversation. And I realized that like the person in front of me in line, like, didn't ask them how they were. And the person behind me in line didn't ask them how they were. And like, at some point you have to kind of show this like willingness to listen. And there's, and it's like a very um, nuanced thing, but like, I, you know, we all know that feeling when someone doesn't really want to talk to us. And um, I guess like I had like just enough of that kind of sympathetic demeanor that I feel like I was kind of crossing those barriers of like from stranger to acquaintance, like all the time, really quickly in ways that um, I feel like a lot of people don't. That, see, again, I'm going to have to say it on the superhero thread. That's a superpower because I feel like honestly, having people be able to come to you and feel open is like a pretty powerful thing because it's, I don't know what it is, but it's like kind of on and off for some people where it's like, you know, maybe you're not as comfortable of a person to uh, talk to or whatnot, but have you, I don't know how to word this, but would you say your interest has generally always been like pretty genuine or did you begin doing it out of just like courtesy sake of actually like asking someone how someone is um, when it started off? Cause sometimes, you know, people do it out of courtesy and then someone ends up just opening and filling their guts, right? That's a really good point. And it's also like, I feel like that's a highly cultural thing, right? Like in America, it's very much, these are pleasantries. Hi, how are you? I'm good, blah, blah, blah. And then you, we move on with our day. And it's more like, I acknowledge you're a person. I acknowledge you're a person and we're moving on, right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not about that. And a lot of countries, if you ask, how are you? You know, in, in Italy, if you ask that, someone will tell you, my elbow is aching and <laughs> my cousin never called me back. <laughs> and um and I, I i've heard that a lot of americans are very surprised when they you know get someone's whole life story um during one of these interactions i mean I, it's a good point like how genuine is that i mean i would say there have been many times where i've been very surprised um but i also realized like if you look someone in the eyes well when you're saying like how's how's it going like how are you doing today it is genuine right like and yeah, and I and I would say it's a total mix. Like there definitely have been some times where I where I, you know, I'm kind of just going through my day, and um, I, you know, we end up striking up a conversation. But I think there's to some degree it's like 
you have to be, maybe someone surprises you by responding, but it's like, do you shut that down when they respond or do you encourage it? And it's like, I feel like with any conversation, it's a constant, you're constantly reading the other person and you're trying to say, like, is this person interested in hearing more? And so even if it was a surprise at first that someone like is willing to open up more, um, it's, it's a constant feedback process in, you know, so even if the initial surprise is, is not, I'm intending to, you know, mine you for your life story. Um, I think, I think it's, it's a continuous thing from there. Mm -hmm. And up to that point about kind of like the cultural differences, I want to bring you back to that tea room in Manchester and what, what were kind of like the biggest, I guess, learning outcomes from interviewing a group that, I think is very different in like two facets, right? There's like the civilian veteran divide and then there's also the cultural like American British divide. So maybe could you speak more about how, like that journey? And that was also like your first time dipping your toes into journalism, right? Oh, absolutely. So um, yeah, that was a really interesting case. First off, I was very afraid the entire summer. <laughs> um, uh, and I, you know, I'm not a, I wasn't a natural right away. I mean, uh -huh. like, like I had a, you know, I, for some reason it always happened that like, I would turn on my recorder and like a like air conditioning unit would decide to like make a loud noise or, um, you know, I would, I would, I would sweat a little bit <laughs> at one point. I was like, oh, like I need to calm down. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I don't want to weird anyone out. Um, um, but I, so I remember the tea room in Manchester. I remember I took a, like a three hour, I think train ride from London to Manchester. And um, I uh, had never been to Manchester before. And um, I was meeting a really nice guy. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Actually, you know what? It was actually confidential, so I can't even tell you his name. Um, so it's convenient that I don't remember it. Um, and um, it was really interesting because he was one of, like, he wasn't an officer. He mm -hmm. was like a regular soldier, um, an enlisted soldier. Um, and so he kind of had a different perspective. Um, but I actually felt like he was the best interview I did the whole time because rather than, you know, rather than like, uh, I'd say like editorializing or like talking about his takeaways from the experience, he really told me stories about his experience. Um, and I remember I had picked like the most awkward location for an interview. It was like the tea room was empty completely for like him and I, and there were these like big plush, um, these big plush chairs we sat in. And it was like so over the top. Like it was like not casual at all. It was like they put out the tea tray and there oh, were like wow. the little, you know, the little, um, the little sandwiches and the uh -huh. little parts. And I, you know, you want to keep it as casual as possible. So, but I somehow had picked like the fanciest tea room in Manchester. I was like, what, what am I thinking? But um, we got to talking and I think, along the way, I realized that, um, you know, like, I asked him, why did you join the army? And he, you know, he was, like, very casual about it. He was, like, I was part of, like, a pre-military program that was for young boys, and it was, like, this it was just the natural next step to me. He had, he was injured in action, and I think I remember talking to him, and I asked him, um, like, how would you feel if you're, you know, like, were your parents supportive of you leaving? Um, and I, I kind of assumed that any parent would be like, 
no, hell no, I don't want my kid to get hurt. And it was funny, he was like, you know, I have brothers, I'm not the only one. And, you know, if I was killed in action, I have, I have other brothers and my parents have other children. And it was such a different perspective than anything that I had ever heard before. And um, like, I was honestly pretty shocked by a lot of his responses. Um, I think it, it really challenged me to think about my own assumptions about like what I thought about um, like military service because we have a, we talk a lot about military service in the U S as being like an honorable thing. We talk about like, we use the term hero a lot and that's not really present in the UK in the same way. Like we, we talk about support our troops. We talk about, um, you know, like we have parades and that sort of thing. And I remember some of the troops I talked to, or some of the, the veterans I talked to said that the most, the, the best reception they ever got for being a veteran was when they traveled to the U.S. And they like, they like went to a bar in the U.S. on leave and like mm -hmm. people were buying them free beers. And they were like, <laughs> this is not, this is not present in our daily life in the U.K., yeah, and, and I, I would say, like, when I talked to him in that tea room, that awkward tea room in Manchester, I was, I was really surprised by his point of view. And, you know, now, now he works in, like, a store. He's, like, a sales rep. Um, and, like, being in combat is, like, the past for him, I'd say, with the exception of the fact that now he's part of this race car driving team that's just for veterans. It's, like, him that's like being back with that community because he said the bonds that he had with his, with the men in his unit were were incredibly strong and the biggest thing he missed when he came back home you mentioned a couple of topics that i would deem as like pretty like going pretty deep at least for an american audience like talking about mortality and talking about family and talking about like injuries in you know a war zone no mm -hmm. less did you feel mm -hmm. like he was a, a tough nut to crack well, no, he wasn't. He was very open. And also, to some degree, people had to, like, um, agree to talk to me. <laughs> um, so they they kind of, if they weren't, they didn't want to talk about it, then they probably wouldn't agree to an interview. Uh -huh. um, but I definitely think, like, there's a weird thing that happens where, um, I'd say I feel this way in journalism, it's like, who does this interview serve? And I don't want to feel like I'm like a vulture picking on your story, right? Like I want it to be a meaningful experience for both people and I want it to be based on mutual respect. And I kind of was worried going into this research project that it was just for my benefit that they were, they were talking to me, right? But then I talked to all of these men and um, many of them were like, it feels good to talk or it feels good to reflect or, you know, no one's really asked me about this before. And I think, and that made me feel really good because ultimately I was, I was intellectually curious about their point of view, but I wanted to be coming from a place of like empathy and I, and I wanted to, to be mutually beneficial. And so it made me realize like, oftentimes we like are afraid of asking questions to someone else because we assume it will hurt their feelings or assume that like, it's too touchy to talk about. But oftentimes it's like those touchy topics that someone needs to be asked about because they might not feel comfortable bringing up in an everyday conversation. How do you navigate that kind of fine line, right? Cause you want to have this mutual respect and understanding and sort of this two-way street where you're able to come in and ask these questions and figure out these things that you're sort of on the search for, but also 
give them this platform to be as open as they feel? How do you know when to like push and ease a question in to get to that core stuff that is often the substance and butter of a lot of stories versus be like, oh, maybe that's something that I shouldn't really try to get out of that person, especially in this case of like topics surrounding the military, which can, you know, I feel are often quite sensitive and can flip pretty quickly. I think people have different perspectives on this. For me, it's like there's there's this term in journalism and it's called accelerated intimacy. And it's basically like you are, because you're starting from like no relationship with the person and you're asking them to share intimate parts of their lives. And so it's kind of, you have to establish a rapport very quickly. I would say like with the people I talk to, I mean, some of these interviews went a really long time. I had one interview that went four hours long. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'd say with those sort of ones and, and, you know, I was an inexperienced interviewer. So I was really nervous about asking the tough questions. And so I didn't, I waited a long time to ask those questions, or I would hope that topics that I was interested in would come up on their own, which sometimes they did. But now I realize that that's not a very good strategy. And I mean, I just encourage people to ask the question and maybe just preface by saying like, hey, I'm new with this topic, or hey, if this makes you uncomfortable, like feel free not to respond. Um, And then just ask the tough question. Um, I did a story, I was interviewing um, like survivors of sexual assault about some of the political actions they were doing for a story while I was at Stanford. And I remember being so nervous because I knew it was a very difficult part of their lives. And um, I, you know, I feel like in that situation, I just was like, this is your story to share if you want to. And if you don't want to, I'm not going to press you on it. And like, I'd say just like, you have to let the person say no to you. And if they don't want to talk about it, they'll just, they won't talk about it. But oftentimes like being brave enough to ask that question, create like opens the space for someone else to like be brave and share as well. And then kind of a follow-up on that. And this, you mentioned this concept of accelerated intimacy, correct? Yeah. That's the phrase. Um, And that you used to have in these early stages, some of these like interviews that went on a lot longer than I'm sure some of these interviews now go on. Are your interviews sort of less roundabout now as you kind of have a more set idea of things to go to as far as like questions go? Or do you still try to let it be as natural as possible? Because sometimes just letting things be natural makes them be longer, but do you go in a little bit more, I don't know, with a specific angle now to try to get what you need? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think it depends on like how much time I have. If I'm writing an article and it's due that day, I'm like, I have one thing I need to find out and you need to tell me. (laughs) Um, But, you know, usually I like to, like there's a classic thing you do where at the end you're like, is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is important? Um, That's, you always have to ask that. If you don't ask that, you're going to miss out on the most important stuff. Sometimes people just use it to add their opinion about something and then that's not as helpful. But oftentimes, you know, like I remember when I was talking to one veteran and I said that I didn't ask about suicide in the military, but he decided that that was the time he felt comfortable to share about experiences with other veterans and suicide. 
And that was an example of something that I wasn't brave enough to ask about, but by virtue of letting him have the floor, he, it opened up the space where he could talk about it. It's really, it's definitely tough because it's, these are tough topics for anyone to talk about. And I feel like very privileged that people would want to share them with me. But I also think that at the end of the day, it's really not about me. Like that's the thing about interviewing. It's, it's literally 0% about you and it's 100% about the other person and you're guiding a discussion between two people. And I just, I will chat with people because I'm a chatty person. But at the end of the day, like what I say doesn't matter at all. All, I, all that matters is, is prompting another person to, to share what they say. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's a great take on it. You are like a, a vessel for their story, right? In a way, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm not, I, you know, it, I'm not, I'm not a, that great at it yet, right? Like yeah. maybe you talk to me in five years and I'll be, I'll be telling you about <laughs> the dumb stuff I did right now. <laughs> All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, check out uh, episode 205 years uh, of Isabella Javillian. Well, I wanted to transition and this is also going to be, uh, we want to plug one of your, uh, works you covered the the fires the campfires of was it 2018 2019 um, in the Bay Area um, and I just wanted to see while we were on that kind of mindset of like broaching the difficult topics we're kind of moving into a different area where people's like livelihoods and households were lost in like a blink of an eye and I wanted to see you now as a, more, a slightly more experienced journalist how did you approach that story yeah, so that was a pretty crazy thing because I say I, I covered it, but I actually, to be completely transparent, I was in paradise. I was in paradise. I was in Chico, California for less than 24 hours. Um, and so the crazy thing about that was I was, I was supposed to get on a plane um, to go home for Thanksgiving break the next day. And I had a friend who was also in journalism school um, her name's Ashlyn Rollins, and she did a lot more reporting on um, Campfire than me. She's from Chico, and so this was her hometown that was affected. And she said she was going up to Chico to report on on the fires. And I thought to myself, I had like two, I had another article that I had to write. And um, I kind of had this moment, I was like, this is big news. And like, it's happening like a two, three hour drive away from me and I need to be there. And so I remember I drove up and as I drew up, the sky went from like slowly from blue to orange. And um, because the smoke, there was so much smoke in the sky that, that um, it had turned orange. And I remember I arrived and I, the first place I went to um, interview people was a Walmart parking lot where a lot of people had set up tents and vans. And I arrived and to be honest, I was very, I was, it, it, it was a different feeling than you feel in regular life. Um, I got out of the car and it, there was that sound like, you know, the stressed out dog barking sound when like it's an unhappy dog barking. And it was very, very loud because there were a couple of if I remember correctly, there were a couple of generators going. So you could hear the generator sound and there was a ton of people and they were, they were camped and some people had camper vans and had set up lawn chairs. There were tents. There were huge tarps that were covered in clothing. 
And I remember feeling, I remember I had my camera and my microphone and I was, I was having trouble. I was having technical difficulties and I was interviewing people and there were news reporters that were there with their vans. One of them was doing a stand-up by sitting, a stand-up was when you broadcast live. He was sitting on top of his van. And I remember I walked around and I interviewed people and I got back to my car and I was so overwhelmed by the situation, I literally burst into tears. And this is, and I just like to say, like, this is me coming from a complete position of privilege in that I can like arrive and I can leave. And it was like very, it was very overwhelming. And there was this, this feeling in the air of like, yes, this is a disaster. This is a disaster. And like, at first I thought like, I'm in too deep and I'm not a good enough journalist to handle this. And then I remember I decided, I was like, okay, Isabella, you're, you're here, like suck it up. Like, it's not about you, <laughs> which is, I'd say the best, best thing I could have said to myself, cause it's not about you. It's about the story. And I went to this other parking lot, which was outside of Target. There was a donation center and where there were lots of people that were rummaging through clothes. And so I actually ended up striking a conversation with this really nice lady. Her name's Tamara South. And she had, and I interviewed her as she was looking for clothes for her kids because, you know, they had, they fled with nothing. Um, they had, I think she said that she had like six pit bulls or something. Um, and she had loaded them all into the car and, and tried to get out of, I think she was from Megalia, which is just north of Paradise. She tried to get out of Paradise. And I... I talked to her and and she basically, she told me about what it was like to escape. And, you know, for her, the toughest thing was that she wasn't with her daughter when she was leaving. And so for a couple of hours, she had no idea um, if her daughter was okay. And so that was, that was, that's really, that's really scary. And you know, she was willing to share that with me. And then we kind of talked about what is, you know, then we talked about like, how, how do you operate in this situation? And even something like, look, look at these donation centers. They are absolutely full of clothing. Like a new, a new truck arrives with clothes, like every couple hours. And there are volunteers from surrounding areas, but like, there are all these problems that are associated with it, right? Like there's that, you know, happen when it's disaster response is coming from so many different directions. You have like 10 different agencies, you know, people like, people don't have, uh, you know, everything from like, where do I sleep to, you know, I don't have an address, so I can't receive mail. Um, You know, I can't receive my, maybe my unemployment check or, you know, or, you know, pay a bill or that sort of thing to, you know, these donation centers are set up and actually people don't have a home, so they have nowhere to put the items from this donation center. And then what happens when it rains? Um, Like what rain, you know, when you have two tons of clothing kind of spread out. And so, yeah, and so meeting Tamara was really, and connecting with her. And then later the next day I met her daughter and I'd say like meeting her and grounding my reporting in the experience of this one person um, was like the most meaningful part of the whole experience. Um, Even more meaningful than I was able to get with my press pass into paradise itself and survey the wreckage. And I would say like nothing compared to talking with Tamara yeah, if you guys are curious, I actually have, I produced a video on it. So um, 
you can you can view her talking about her escape um but yeah it was it was pretty crazy and then you know the 24 hours later i like got in my car and i drove out of um paradise and the fields was so if you're if you go up to chico area mm -hmm. there's a lot of um it's like very there's a lot of agriculture there and there are these like huge broad fields of brush right like that are like grassy fields and um you know it's california in the fall so it's all like bright yellow or bright brown and so there and in these fields it's like completely yellow and then it's then it's scorched black from where the fire went and there's this like line of demarcation where the fire came and, and stopped and so I'm driving out and I'm like see I the sky is turning back from orange to blue again and I'm leaving and I, I got home and I, like, I burst into tears again. And, um, I, you know, that's the privilege of a journalist. You can go and you can experience something and you can leave. Um, but at the end of the day, like, the people that I interviewed can't leave. And so that's, like, that's definitely a tricky situation to be in. And I feel like I have the utmost respect for anyone that I interviewed because I know that we're in different positions. Like, I had... You know, I was staying, I was staying in Chico, so I had somewhere to stay the night, but like Tamara didn't have somewhere to stay the night. Like, I think she, actually she had, she was staying with some friends as well. She had crowded into a, a friend's house, but, and, but, um, but like many of these people were sleeping in tents that night. And I'd say like, it's a real privilege to have people be like, accept that accelerated intimacy and share their stories. Is there a, is there a philosophy I guess, generally used and slash, do you have a personal philosophy about where you draw that line between like, obviously like you want to be a caring human, but also there are some like journalistic, I guess, principles that you have to like uphold or something? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like a war correspondent, so I haven't like come mm -hmm. into like a real, I haven't come into the same sort of ethical issues that someone, sure. that, you know, somebody that's, that's reporting in a country where, for example, like malnourishment is a big issue. I mean, that is a really tricky situation. There are people that are like, you know, war photographers that are, are dealing with these sort of issues every day. I mean, in my case, I kind of feel like the, the way that I often help, I, that I helped in those situations was a lot of people were looking for information. And so in that case, it's like if I had done an interview and I knew more information about what was going on, like I could say, oh, there's a donation center here and here, or I know XYZ person is handing out food. And so I feel like in one of those, the disaster situation, the information flow is crazy. And there's so many rumors swirling about like a there, there was rumors that Paradise High had burned down. That was not true. I, we went, I saw Paradise High. It was smoke damage, but it was not burned down. And so I feel like in those situations, the, like the most I really could help was, um, was like passing on information. But, you know, it's, it's a fair point. It's like, I'm not there as a volunteer. I'm there to get a story. And, is, you know, ha to what degree is that, is that a selfless action? Right. Like it's, you know, to some degree information is, is important and, and correcting misinformation is incredibly important because you don't want to be telling people their high school burned down when it didn't burn down. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. Would I have made a more in a bigger impact if I had just driven up and become a volunteer? Like, 
Yeah, that's a, it's a fair question. So it's one thing for you to be able to kind of uh, create the separation, right, of, of the being the journalist versus becoming involved in what you're covering. And I want to flip it a little bit on the end of the people you're interviewing and the community they're working with. What is their perception of you or what do you think their perception of you is as you come in trying to collect this story? Do they see you as purely a journalist or in cases where you mentioned where they were trying to ask you for like, oh, where's the nearest like um, release center or donation bin or things like that? Like, what are their thoughts on you? Do they very much like see you as like, oh, she's just here reporting or do they kind of bring you in and show you much more than that? Yeah, I mean, so that's a, it's a good question. I always introduced myself as a journalist and I feel like that very much, um, that like kind of defines the relationship from the very okay. start. Um, I do find sometimes I approach people and they're, they're a little like, why is this person approaching me? Yeah. <laughs> um, which is definitely its own thing. Like I was reporting um, one of my favorite stories. This is just a fun story I did was I was in the Bronx and I reported on a scene, uh, like a, a, the steps that were in the movie Joker. Um, they were like filmed in the Bronx. And so I wrote an article about that. And I was, I was interviewing the people that were hanging out on the steps and they're, you know, walking up with their groceries and that sort of thing. And I like, I'm like, oh, excuse me, can I walk with you for a minute? As like this guy is walking up the stairs. And he was like, kind of like, who is this girl? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a tough act, a tough act to do in New York. Yeah, in New York. <laughs> Where there's like people trying to like sell you their mixtapes for like $20. yeah 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 I'm not I'm not a panhandler I'm not trying to sell a mixtape <laughs> and he I was like oh I'm a journalist I'm writing about this location because it was in the movie Joker and he was like phew I thought you were gonna jump me <laughs> and I was like <laughs> I was like I do not give off that vibe but like I do not give off that vibe at all <laughs> but um you know it's it's New York so people are gonna kind of bust your balls a little bit and yeah and they yep. have a sense of humor um so I mean I introduced I introduced myself right away but I think a lot of people are like she's really young um you know mm -hmm. or I'm a very effusive person so I think sometimes people are caught off guard if I report like a negative part of a story like if they tell like I'm a very po positive person but um I never want to blindside someone if they say something like you know my workplace is has a bad culture or you know so and so is messing this thing up like I'm still going to include that in my article but sometimes it's like people assume that because I'm really friendly I'm going to like edit stuff out for them yeah. and it's like at the end of the day I'm going to get the story and if you feel comfortable telling me those negative things and those negative things are important to the story like I'm still I'm going to write about that and that's why I introduced that I'm a journalist and I set the ground rules from the get-go so that so that because this conversation is different from us being pals because this conversation can end up in print. Um, and it's important to remind people that. Um, and um, especially with someone that's never been interviewed before, it's important because sometimes if you don't tell them at the get go, at the end they're like, wait, I could be quoted on this? And, I, and I'm like, Absolutely. <laughs> but the thing is, is that if I, if they're surprised at the end, that I didn't do my job in terms of explaining how this conversation can go and like what the ground rules are. And so if there's someone that has not used to talking to media, then it's really my job to make sure because I'm not here to gotcha anyone. I'm here to, 
to respectfully, you know, respectfully have a conversation and, and get new information for people to read. No, that makes sense. So it's like kind of you got to set up your boundaries and make sure they understand the relation sort of from the get go, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also sometimes people you're having a conversation with them and they're like, okay, so like, when is the interview going to start? And, you know, it's, it's like, it's my job to be like, oh yeah, like, you know, this isn't it. This is, this is an interview. Like sometimes it feels like a conversation too, you know, but, but if I introduce myself as a journalist and say, oh, my tape recorder is on, you know, I don't use, I, I say, you know, just so you know, I can quote you from this at the beginning because people don't necessarily know the, the lingo of like on the record, off the record, on yeah. background. And so you mm -hmm. have to explain to them what that means exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all kind of part of being respectful and it's mistakes that you make early on like you know i made mistakes early on about a story about spike ball you know and it's like you write smaller you you write these stories smaller stories early on and you learn how to manage that relationship and you do make mistakes and like at the end of the day i always try to be on the same page and i don't want to surprise anyone and i don't want to surprise anyone that oh that ended up in the article because if they're surprised then I, then I've done something wrong. And then one final thing, and I remember this from the few days that I used to write like small newspaper articles is um, the challenge of getting people who try to feed you answers, you know, when it's like, oh, what should I say? Or like try to adjust their answers, knowing that they're being reported on, because it's not a common thing for a journalist to just show up and be like, tell me something, you know, um, to get them in that position where they do get to the most honest, natural answer, as opposed to trying to craft something knowing that you're making a story mm -hmm. like how do you ensure that like hey give me like what really is as opposed to like some I don't know adjusted version of that yeah I mean it's a fair question if you get on the phone with a PR person they're not gonna they're not gonna <laughs> tell you the dirt <laughs> like it's a whole job not to tell you the dirt yeah and um yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're talking to someone and they really don't want to tell you something, they're not going to tell you that, right? But, if, but you can kind of, you can be straight with them. And especially it's like, if you've done your research and you are, know the, that a phenomenon is going on, you can, you can say like, my research tells me that like, you know, my research tells me that your company is, is struggling to do X, Y, Z, you know, what is your comment on that? Or can you confirm that that's happening? Then, then you're kind of cutting through all the spin and you're saying, Hey, like, this is the truth, or I have this suspicion. And then it kind of forces them to respond to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely tough. And that's why you have to do your research and talk to people that are not the PR person. Yeah. Um, because the PR person wants to, you to tell everyone how amazing their company is. And you have to really do your homework. And that's where you, that's where you find the meaningful stuff. Got it. So golden rule is swerve the, the PR folks. Well, they're really, they're often really helpful. And like, especially if you're reporting on something like I, you have to, you, they work with you all the time. Like uh -huh. they're your first point of contact. But like, if you're, you're trying to report on something that nobody else is reporting on and, or it might be negative, uh -huh. then the PR person is like, is, cannot be your only source on that. Yeah. But Isabella, we're coming up to the time that we have you. So thank you so much for joining us, sharing your, your perspective on journalism. But before we oh, actually end, we always do a rapid fire question segment. 
California beaches or Connecticut beaches? Connecticut beaches. Ooh. Yeah, big time. Big time. <laughs> Sorry, Californians. Part of uh, being a journalist requires kind of being on the road a good amount of time for some stories. What are your top road trip snacks? Oh, uh, to have a in the car? burrito from El Griense. Um, I once, I once, <laughs> <Nice. laughs> I once got a <laughs> two carnitas burritos in the morning, and like all I was, oh, all I gosh. ate that day. I was like, I just slowly nice. worked my way through both of them over the Pitiful course of twelve down. hours. <laughs> Just one-handing a burrito. Amazing. Big time. Um, as someone who, who worked in New York City, New York Post or the New York Daily News in terms of like shit-tier journalism? Oh, good. I think I'm kind of like New York Post. I'm not going to lie. Is it because of the puns on the... Better puns on I, the headlines? I like, I, like the, I like the puns on the headlines. I also just think there's kind of like... I, I don't mind a little snark. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can deal with Low, low bite. Yeah. And then the final one to wrap it up, sort of the favorite story type to report on, you know, whether that's like a human story, a business thing, what usually is your oh, favorite. Oh, I love, I love me a feature. I love, I love an arts feature. And I just actually, I just wrote a story about virtual clubs that were made by uh, Berlin promoters. So if you're curious about my love of features, that one just published over the weekend. Where, where can we find it? Um, at businessinsider.com. I'm pretty sure the, um, yeah, you can, you can look it up. You just look up Berlin, like virtual clubs, if you Google it. Right on. Boom. And, and you did the, and you did your own plug. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you again. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm my own PR person. <laughs> there we go. Right on. Go check her out. Folks. Yeah. Oh, Thank it's you. so nice talking yeah. with you guys. I feel very, it's very funny being on the other side of the interview talking about myself. <laughs> yeah. Oscar, your mustache is really in full force. Yeah, it is. I had a beard and then I shaved that off and I haven't cut my hair. Yeah, it's, we're, we're trying, it's we're trying to be quarantine for sure. Yeah, I like, I like it. It kind of, I feel like it's very like, it's like you're a cartoon character to some degree. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I feel like for I some reason work, I'm getting yeah. vibes like, remember the, um, the cartoon recess your yeah. cartoon? I yeah. feel like oh, yeah. I feel like with your glasses and your hair like your mustache it's like you could be your own little character on that show